earlier this week, I was preparing my sermon. I was reading the scripture. We're going to be in Lamentations chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And there's this one verse that says, great is your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. I messaged Kimberly and I said, I know this is a little late. Can you see if Kenny would be willing to do great is thy faithfulness for an invitation? And Kimberly said, well, I don't think that's going to be a problem because he already has it as one of his songs for this week. That's just how one way that God was working in this. And the thing is, is that I was try- I knew I was going to preach on faithfulness this week, but I hadn't had not narrowed down exactly which passage I was going to use in preaching about faithfulness. And, and I wanted to preach on faithfulness because we've been talking about being a biblical church. One of the ways that we can be a biblical church is for us to be faithful to God. But what we need to remember is, as the title of this week's sermon says, is that we, we do need to be a church that's faithful to God, but it's because He is faithful to us that we see the example in Him of what it means, what it looks like to be faithful. I just want to encourage you, as we're looking at this week, to remember that God is faithful. And those words that we, we sang earlier, as we read them later on in this chapter, I, I want you to remember the context every time we sing this song in the future. I want us to remember the context of where this song came from, of great is thy faithfulness and what that looks like. When I was thinking about the church and what, what are some of the most important characteristics of the church, one of the basic questions that we need to ask is, why does the church exist? And so we've answered a lot of that, that we exist to, to mainly to glorify God, to be in relationship with Him, and to tell others about Him so that they can know Him, so that they can be saved, so they can have a relationship with Him. Um, but the church in the New Testament, we are defined as the bride of Christ. We are defined as the spouse of Jesus. And I even thought about preaching out of Ephesians 5 this morning. And I, I always cover this in, when I'm doing premarital counseling or when I'm doing a wedding. I always try to mention this passage because I believe that it's so important to us. But in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul compares the church and her relationship to Jesus to a wife and her relationship to her husband. And so there's this comparison there. And when you think about marriage, one of the most important aspects of marriage is faithfulness, is we need to be faithful. But one of the things that we see throughout the scripture is that God is always faithful. God always remains faithful. But who does not always remain faithful? Yeah, the church, or in the Old Testament, the Israelites. Over and over and over again, we we see that the church, just to, let's put it in some common vernacular, the church is cheating on God. The Israelites are cheating on God with other gods, with selfishness, whatever the case might be in whatever particular passage you might find yourself in. There are many times when the church is not faithful. And today, we're going to pick up in the middle of one of those moments. And we're going to see uh, exactly what I'm talking about. Now, Lamentations, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's not one of those books that you often go to if you just want to be encouraged. 
Jeremiah, his nickname is the Weeping Prophet. It's because he went through some very difficult, hard times. And what's going on with Jeremiah, and and we talked about this a little bit back in June when we looked at Jeremiah 29 uh, during a message. God's people, the Israelites, they have constantly, continuously disobeyed God over and over again. And he has warned them. He has said, if you do not repent, then I will refine you through punishment. I will discipline you. Because God desired what was best for them, and the way they were living was not best. Jeremiah, the prophet, he would speak up in these crazy, loud ways and these creative ways, and it just did not get people's attention. People refused to listen to what he had to say. And they called him a false prophet, and it was terrible. And eventually, um, God sent in the Babylonians to destroy Israel to destroy Jerusalem, where the city was. It it was laying in ruins. And Jeremiah was left there, but a bunch of the people, most of the people, were taken as exiles into Babylon. Lamentations is written after that occurs. Lamentations is written after the city has been destroyed. This is basically poetry, most of it. It's poetry of of Jeremiah writing, and it's, it's this wisdom literature. And here's what we find, is that Israel, who has disobeyed, is being punished. The situation where we're going to find ourselves, Jerusalem has been destroyed, they're exiles in Babylon, that is on the shoulders of Israel. God warned them, Jeremiah warned them, and all that. And so there are some times when we, as human beings, where we sin, and our sin causes God to judge us, to discipline us. Our sin causes terrible consequences in our lives. And that's a reality. But oftentimes, as was the case for Jeremiah, he did, as far as we know, he did everything that God told him to do. He said what God wanted him to say. He was the person that God asked him to be. Now, he was a sinner, just like anybody else, but he was trying to follow God. He was striving to follow God. And did he have to suffer the consequences of the effects of the sin around him? The people who sinned around him? Absolutely. He did. And so then, when we're reading this, I want us to remember that, yes, it is true, there are times in our lives where God is trying to get our attention. When We have sinned, and he has been patient, and he over and over again, he has given us an opportunity to repent, and we have not repented, and God brings his discipline. In fact, Hebrews tells us that any father who loves his child will discipline his child. Of course, you want what's best for your kid, and you're going to teach them to do things. With John and Emma, my six- and two-year-old, Rose and I, we discipline them all the time. We haven't exactly found what works yet, but we're still trying But we discipline them for a reason. And we always explain to them the reason why they were disciplined. And and this will come back into play later in the sermon. But for example, John is at the age now where when we discipline him, we can ask him, okay, why did you get in trouble? 99% of the time, he knows. A few weeks ago, I had to discipline him. And I said, now why did I have to do that? (laughs) Because it was so obvious that he was headed down that road. No amount of warning prevented him from getting there. I tried. 
uh, I, did, I don't like disciplining him, uh, you know, in whatever form or fashion that we choose to do it at, in that moment. But it was required because I love him and I want him to learn not to do that. And I'm sure that Miss Walker at school, his first grade teacher, wants me and Rose, she, she wants us to discipline John to help him learn how to function in society and to be the best man he can possibly be. And so if we love our kids... And we as adults have a good perspective that because we love them, we have to discipline them. Of course, God, who is perfect and has the perfect perspective, knows what he's doing. And not only does he know what he's doing when he's disciplining those who have disobeyed him, but even when he allows hardship and difficulty into the lives of those who have not, are not living in open rebellion. They have repented of their sins. They are trying, striving to live in right relationship with him. Even when he brings difficulty into the lives of those type of people, which, by the way, sometimes we're both types of people, right? Sometimes we have been the person who has got his discipline for our sin, and we have been the person who we've experienced hardships that were not a, a fault of our own. Because we live in a world where sin exists and dwells and has corrupted. We feel the effects of sin, whether it's our own sin or other sins, all the time. We feel the effects of death. And sin is what causes death, according to Scripture. And we, we, we feel the effects of death. We feel the pain. We feel the hurt. As we, we get into Lamentations, I just want us to have a really good godly perspective that suffering occurs... For all of us at some point or time. And there are different levels of suffering. I hope that all of us in here have experienced the harshest suffering that we will ever experience already. I hope that's in our past. Realistically, that's probably not accurate. Unless the Lord returns today and we're all Christians in here. We're all saved. What I want us to do as we're reading this passage is I want us to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites. I want us to put ourselves in the place of Jeremiah. I want us to put ourselves, try to have the perspective of why God is doing what he's doing and try to have a godly perspective. But I want us to feel what Jeremiah was feeling. Now, I don't want us to all leave here weeping prophets or anything like that, but I do want us to try to put ourselves in the place of Jeremiah so that this passage can have the best effect on our hearts that it can have, that God could use it for the best effect. So, when we get to chapter 3, he's already transitioned from talking about Israel's sin and Israel's situation. And now he's transitioning more into talking about his own. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man. Okay? I am the man. He's saying, I, which is first person, am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, we don't have time to read this whole chapter since it's fifty or 66 verses. So we're, we're, we're going to go and skip down a little bit. But we'll start at verse 16 in just a second on, on the screen. But before we get there, let me just tell you that uh, Jeremiah is the man who has seen affliction. He says in verse 1. And as you continue reading this, I mean, this, this is insane, really, when you read it. In verse 10, he says that he, being God, is a bear lying in wait for me. That's how Jeremiah feels. He feels like God is on the prowl. He's a lion in the very next sentence, he says, in part of that sentence. He's a lion 
Okay, so God is a bear. God is a lion. He is coming after Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in his crosshairs. Israel is in his crosshairs. And, and of course, we're going to see later that this is Jeremiah's perspective. This is how he feels about what God is doing. But there's also a realistic way that God is actually acting. So we'll see both. When, when you're pouring out your heart to God, when you're in a moment of despair... Are you always saying what is true and what is realistic, or are you saying what you are feeling? Are you saying what is what is true to your heart in that moment, the, what you see in that moment as truth, even if it's not truth or absolute truth? It's, it's about how you feel. And so he is a bear lying in wait for me, is verse 10. I mean, it, it's bad. He drove something into his kidneys, and all this is figurative speech. The point is that he is experiencing intense suffering, and he knows God could do something about it. Isn't that truth? It's a hard truth, but God is God. Couldn't he put an end right this moment to all suffering? He could. That is truth. He could. He could send Jesus back right now. And put an end to all this suffering. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more tears. Those are the things that await us. No more hurricanes destroying whole towns and destroying homes. No more of that. He could put an end to it right now. We can't escape that truth. That is true. If we believe that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that he is in control then we have to believe that he could put an end to all suffering for all time right now. So why doesn't he? Well, we see hints of that all throughout Scripture. We see the thread sewn all throughout Scripture. And here's what we know. That if he were to return right now, how many people don't know him and would spend an eternity separated from him? We hear in the New Testament that he is being patient For our sake. He's not going back on his promise, as some are accusing him of, to return. He's not doing that. He is being patient for our sake. For the sake of those who need to know him. He is being patient. For your loved ones who you pray for and cry out for and ask God to save them. The only reason, not the only reason, but a reason why he has not returned is because... He wants us to have more time to repent. He wants us to have more time to turn to him. And so that's a reason why he's being patient. He's not going back on his promise. There are many reasons that scripture gives for why suffering continues and why God doesn't intervene more than he already has. And we're going to look at some of those reasons today. But what we have to believe as Christians... If we believe scripture, if we believe the Bible, and we put our faith in God and we believe God, then we have to believe that he knows what he's doing. We have to trust him. We have to trust him even in the midst of our suffering. That he is going to uphold the promises he has given us in scripture. For example, will God work all things together for good? For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Yes, he has promised. Suffering from our perspective in moments of despair 
seems unbearable. It seems like God is a bear or a lion, try, lion trying to attack us. It seems like all hope is lost. And we're going to look at this. And, and I'm going to be honest. Uh, this is difficult to preach. Because I've been looking at this all week. And there's like the lowest of despair in this passage. And, and then this beautiful glimmer of hope. And it's both there. They're both there. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of suffering, so that his faithfulness can draw us and compel us to be faithful ourselves, no matter what life throws at us. And so let's, let's just, I, I need to get to the scripture. We're going, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 16. We'll start here in, in the, the scripture that you're, you're, if you're reading along in your Bible or on the screen, the reason I put the three verses together, 16, 17, 18, and then after that, three verses at a time, is because the way this is written is poetic, and he keeps three verses together. And there's a lot more into it, it technical, technically, um, but we don't have time to hit on all that today, so we're just going to start reading at verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. This pain continues. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Or, or maybe today we would say eat dirt. Or if you were my mom singing at the top of her lungs while she was vacuuming when I was a kid, another one bites the dust. Okay? It's not good what's going on here. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Who is he? He is God. And who is speaking here? My teeth. Who is speaking? It's Jeremiah. God's prophet. Who warned the people? Who told the people? But sometimes we suffer just by association. Just because we are a part of a family or a group or a country or whatever the case might be. But he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. He has none. The peace is dead. It's gone. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Isn't this what we long for as humans? For peace and prosperity and happiness? And Jeremiah has none of it. Despite him being faithful to God. Despite him loving God. Now, Jeremiah was a sinner. Just like we're all sinners. We were born into sin. We have willingly chosen to sin. We are in the, we are just drowning in sin here on this earth. And only through Christ, and only through his forgiveness do we have a hope, do we have a chance. But here is Jeremiah, and even though he was a good man, he was himself a sinner. And he was in the midst of a nation of sinners, and he was experiencing this severe pain that, in my opinion, in this moment was not of his own, of his own fault. I have forgotten what happiness is. Verse 18. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Now I'm going to read all three of these verses together. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. This is not a psalm of joy. This is despair. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you felt this, but I bet many of us in this room have felt this. 
there might be some of us in this room right now who, who we are feeling this in the moment. This is a reality of us living in a sinful world and being sinners in a sinful world and being surrounded by sinners in a sinful world. Tonight, we're having our Family of God meal, which is, for those of you who aren't familiar, we just go out to the Family Ministry Center, our gym out back, and we eat together. And it's going to be Mexican food, and I'm a fan, so I'm excited about it. But what I want us to do tonight is when we get together for our Family of God meal, I would like some of you to come ready to give testimonies of times when you went through difficult seasons in your life, or maybe you're going through a difficult season now, but a testimony of how God has given you peace in the midst of difficulty, how he, maybe you got through that moment, and now with, you can look back with hindsight and see that how God used that moment in your life for his good and for his glory. But tonight at uh, Family of God meal, I hope you'll do that. And uh, the sound system is working now in the Family Ministry Center, and so we can hear each other, so that's good. Uh, so we'll have it on and just set, ready to go. Jeremiah is experiencing pain and suffering. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall? It's like this bitterness, this poison. Remember what I've gone through and what I have to go through. Verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Have you ever just been in such anxiety and pain and just so overwhelmed by the moment that you can't even sit up straight? Where you can't even just function in that moment? That's Jeremiah. He's so humbled by his experience. He's in so much pain. He's so hopeless. He's so desperate that he is just, his soul is bowed down within him. But then we have verse 21. And look, I just read a few verses. There's almost all of Lamentations are verses like this. It's a lament. It's him being honest about his pain and the pain of his people. And so I've just highlighted a few verses. But even in the midst of the pain, look at verse 21. But this I call to mind. So he doesn't think he can remember. He thinks he's hopeless. He thinks that he's in this this pit of despair where there's no escape. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what does he call to mind? What gives him this hope? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So what gives Him hope? In verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What gives Him hope? What is He calling to mind? The next stanza gives us the answer to that. Look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He might feel like God is a bear. He might feel like God is a lion. And when we have sinned, God is coming at us. You, We need to have a healthy respect for who God is. And the Bible calls that a fear of the Lord. And we need to understand that if we are against God, 
whether that's eternally separated from him because we've never asked Jesus to save us and forgive us of our sins. And so there is this ever-present wall between us and God and we are his enemies. Or if we are saved, we have asked God to forgive us and we're Christians, but then we choose to sin even after being Christians, which, by the way, we all do, and we, we choose not to repent of our sin then he is our father, and a good father will discipline his child. And so, whatever the case, or maybe we're just suffering the the consequences of the sin of the people around us, whatever the case, we need to remember, no matter how hard it gets, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That he has a plan, that he knows what he's doing, and there is hope. Even to the hopeless, even in the the pit of the greatest despair, even when a foreign country has come in and destroyed your home and your friends have all been taken as exiles into Babylon, even whatever that is in your life, even in those moments, there is hope. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. King James says his great compassion. And the word used for both of those is... It's like a showing of love. It's a pouring out of emotion of love. This compassion, this love, this steadfast love. His mercies never come to an end. Now, over and over in Scripture, we see where the first time someone sins, it's rare that God acts the first time there's a sin. More often than not, He is very patient. He is long-suffering, and things go on for a while, and He gives many warnings before He acts. And so we need to realize that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That he is merciful. That he is looking for a way to to let us escape. He has given the ultimate way for us to escape the ultimate effects of sin. And that is through the death of his son. For him to even send his son to die for us shows that he is on our side. Shows that he wants to put an end to the pain and the suffering also. And that's why he is saving us. And one day we are promised that all this pain, will there will be an end to it. But that day has not yet come. And so in the meantime, we have to hang on to the promises of his steadfast love and his mercies. That they, they never cease. They, they never come to an end. And they are new every morning. How many of you have ever had a day... Where all you knew to do was get in the bed, close your eyes, and pray that tomorrow is better. There are moments of despair where that's all we can do. Is to hope that tomorrow brings new mercies. That tomorrow he will show his faithfulness to us. He will hear our cry in the despair. Even though for Jeremiah, he's been calling out, he's been crying out. And so, so the people of Israel, but the, the day of their salvation had not come yet. They were going to be in exile for a long time because of what had happened to them. And God warned them of this exile. God warned them of the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet they could still have hope in God and know that every morning his mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness. He is faithful to us. How can Jeremiah call a bear and a lion and in the same breath talk about how great his faithfulness is? It's because Jeremiah is talking from his heart. And there are moments, and both can be true from different perspectives, 
there are moments in our despair when God is after us. When in our sin or whatever the case might be, where God is causing destruction and pain and chaos all around us, that's true. We can't escape that, that that happens. But we also need to understand the truth that he is faithful to us. That if he's allowing these things to happen or causing these things to happen, then it must be for some reason that we don't know, that we can't grasp with our minds, that he knows what he's doing. Verse 25. Or sorry, 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, the, the, the priests in the Old Testament, the Levites, they didn't have, they weren't a part of a tribe that had this land and these, this inheritance. They only got what God gave them. Each generation, each day really, they only had what God gave them. And he was their portion. And Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is my portion. In those moments of despair, in those moments of pain, in those moments of hurt, we can remember that our happiness and our joy is not found in our possessions. It's not even found in things going right for us. Because things can be going right, and we can be the richest person in the room, and we can still be unhappy. Our our joy and our happiness and, and our contentment, they're not found in things. They're not found in circumstances. They're found in God. He is our portion. Even in our despair, God is our portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. So what do we do in our despair? We cry out to him. We pour our heart out to him. Yes, we see people doing that all throughout the Bible. We can't help but to do that sometimes. But what's the best thing to do? The best thing to do is to trust Him and to wait on Him. That's what is best. The, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So there's two different meanings of what this yoke might be. Of course, most of you know a yoke is the the contraption that connects two animals together, goes around their necks and keeps them going together straight. So what is this thing, this yoke that we should have in our youth? It's patience. It's waiting on the Lord. It's suffering and knowing that suffering is going to occur whether we're young or old. You know, pain, it doesn't only come to people of a certain age or a certain uh, aspect of a community. It comes to everyone. And we need to realize that it is good to wait in those moments. It is good to trust God in those moments. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good for us to, to do that. That's why we teach our children discipline. At a young age. It is good for them. It is good for parents to love their kids enough. To help shape them. And and that includes discipline. Into the men and women that they need to be in the future. But at the same time as parents. We have to realize. Or grandparents or great grandparents. We have to realize that kids are kids. That children are children. We have to be patient with them. And it's easy for us to want to discipline sometimes. 
but it's not easy for us to have mercies as God has mercies. And so we have to remember that we need to do all things biblically and like God, not just some. Verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. It's saying, humble himself. Put his face on the ground to be in this this position of humility. There may yet be hope. Now, he's not saying there might, there's a chance that there might be hope. He's just saying, you do these things and there's going to be hope. You do these things and, and God responds to people who approach him in humility. He does not respond in kind to those who approach him with pride. Um, but for time's sake, we have to keep moving. There may yet be hope. Verse 30, let him give his cheek. To the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. Who's the one doing the striking here? God. Even when pain and suffering and chaos come their way. And I'm just going to go ahead and be honest here. I'm the worst. I am the worst at this. As soon as pain and suffering and chaos come into my life. The first thing I do is go cry to my wife about it. And tell, tell her how unfair life can be. And then I complain to God, you know, for about three weeks. And then I come to my senses and realize that I've been, you know, well, I just won't speak too unkindly of myself. But I've not been wise. And um, so I'm guilty of not being, not responding well to suffering. But this is the way we should. And this is the way I want to strive to be. That whatever God brings at me, it is my job as a believer in him and as a Christian, it is my job to not complain about what he is allowing in my life. It is my job to take it because he knows what is best for me. And I'm not saying that we just sit passively by and let people attack us in general or anything like that. That's not what this verse is saying. There are plenty of passages in in this the Old and New Testament, that talk about us doing right by people and people doing right by us and people who don't do right are punished and all of that. Uh, But what this is saying is, is that when God brings certain circumstances into our life, we need to acknowledge that God is in control and that if he is allowing this, it doesn't mean it's making him happy, but he has a plan and he's going to work it together for our good. And there is hope in him. Because his mercies are new every morning. Because great is his faithfulness. There is hope in him, even in the midst of despair. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. Who fulfilled this prophecy the most? Jesus. Who said, turn the other cheek? Jesus. Who was silent as he was being led to the slaughter? Jesus. God's not telling us to do something that he himself didn't do. He knows what is best in these moments of suffering. And it's to continue to hope in Christ. Even when you have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You still have that glimmer of hope within you. You still know what truth is. You still know that he will be there. That this will turn out for best. For the best. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. If you are his, if you are saved, if you belong to him... And there is a season of suffering, and there is a season of discipline. It won't last forever. It probably won't even last forever on this earth. 
unless, unless you have come to the end of your journey here on earth. And if that's the case, then you have something even better than, than the end of your sufferings on earth. You have the end of your sufferings, period. You have heaven to look forward to, to long for, to enjoy. You have God himself to dwell with. And so the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he calls grief, he will have compassion. The very God who calls the grief, the very God who calls the pain, in this, in this sense, I've already talked about what role sin has to play in it, but the, the God who is all-powerful and who had to allow these things to happen, or in some cases, the Bible clearly states that he caused things to happen, that that God will not cast off forever. And though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And so in the same breath that Jeremiah is saying God is all powerful. And that he is the one causing this suffering. And he is a lion. He is a bear. He's waiting to attack. He has caused me to eat gravel. He has caused me to do these things. In the same breath he's saying but there is this glimmer of hope inside of me. There is this hope that that he who caused the grief. He who caused the grief will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And what he's saying here is that he doesn't grieve us without a purpose. He's not sadistic. He's not just coming at us and trying to cause us pain just for the sake of causing pain. He has a reason. Are you experiencing suffering right now? Have you experienced suffering? If you believe in God, then you put your hope in Him. And you know that He has a reason for it. He has a purpose for it. And, and when, he, when you see that, when you trust Him, when He pulls you through it, when we're with Him in heaven, when in the future when we can look back and we can see why He was doing it this way, why he was causing grief. I believe that we will have the perspective of Jeremiah here in these verses. I believe that we will see that the Lord does not cast off forever. And though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. I believe that we will be able to look back. And we will be able to see how God was working all things together for the good of those who love him. And we will be able to look back and we will be able to see the pain. But we will have an immense joy in knowing that God used that pain to do His will. That God used our small, insignificant lives to do incredibly important, significant things for His glory and for His kingdom. You never know the people around you who might be watching you and watching you suffer and the hope that you might be bringing to them in their moment of suffering. Whatever you've experienced... It's, it's, it's been my experience in life, and that's not to say that this is true across the board or for everyone or even every time in my life, but it has been my experience in life that more often than not, when I go through seasons of chaos and trial, that eventually I can look back and I can see how God was using those things to shape me, to transform me into the man I am now and into the man I will be. And so I just have to trust Him. We have to trust Him. And when we see His faithfulness, 
And his willingness to even bring us pain when it's good for us, it should cause us to love him even more. When we feel him carrying us through those moments of hopelessness and desperation, it should increase our faithfulness to him. Not make us want to run away and find relief from some temporary thing that's only going to cause us more pain in the end. We should find our love and our comfort. We, church, should find that in the arms of our husband, the Christ. Not in the things of this earth. We've come to a time where we'll have an invitation. Maybe you need to pray. Pray because you're experiencing a time of grief. Pray because a loved one is experiencing a time of grief. Come down to the altar and, and this this passage talked about a posture of humility come down to the passage to the altar and get on your knees or get on your face before the lord and 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 show him the sincerity of your heart by the posture of your body maybe you're physically unable maybe you need to sit right where you are and just pray and ask god to help you maybe there is sin in your life that is causing this despair and you need to ask god to forgive you of that sin you need to cry out to him because he is like a bear or a lion And he wants you to repent. He wants what's best for you. And he will come after you when we have sin in our lives. And if he's not, if there's sin that you think, well, this is in my life and God hasn't come after me, then that means he's being patient. And he was patient with Jerusalem for a long time before this happened to her. And so we need to, to take God seriously when it comes to sin in our lives. So whether you're repenting, whether you're praying for yourself or for others in pain or whatever the case might be. If you want me to pray with you or someone else in this room to pray for you, this is an appropriate time where we're corporately here together for us to respond to God as a body of Christ. So let's pray and we'll have our time of invitation.